VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshat Rati in Sharm el Sheikh, Egypt. China's record-breaking drought has scorched farms. Fires breaking out around London as the city is besieged. Egypt is preparing to host the next COP summit in November. With an array of new pledges, commitments and promises. I want justice for my people. I want climate justice. We came forward to bear the responsibility of hosting COP27 in the fight against climate change. We are rapidly approaching the end of week one at COP27, and all eyes are turning to the U.S. with President Biden due to make a flying visit on Friday. Later in this episode, we'll hear from the White House National Climate Advisor, Ali Zaidi, about how he plans to advance the climate agenda domestically in the U.S. But with me now is John Fraar, Head of ESG and Energy at Bloomberg News. Welcome to the show, John. Great to be here. How have you found COP so far? This is only my second COP. I'm used to covering events that are quite self-contained, are quite focused on, a, on, on two or three uh, particular points, at, you know, G7s and G20s. But just the sheer range of issues here can be a little overwhelming. But what I've been struck by, I mean, obviously the loss and damage uh, story has been front and center. This is the Africa COP. And we're seeing the African nations coming to the table demanding more money. As expected, the rich countries are saying... Nice warm words, no sign of that money coming. The other thing I've really noticed, how the biodiversity agenda is really becoming more and more important. People are becoming more and more vocal about it. Bankers are becoming more and more interested in it. So when I leave COP, that's something I want to dig more into. Uh, The whole question of rainforest preservations, how can Wall Street, how can finance uh, be a part of that? Is this just another strand of greenwashing? Or... Is this a new um, and potent frontier in the climate debate? Now, let's look at the current geopolitical situation. And how do you think that's affecting COP27? Well, I think the current geopolitical situation is obviously very, very fraught. This is a COP that is being overshadowed, of course, by the energy crisis, by Ukraine. And I think there's two ways of looking at that. On the one hand, you can argue that the climate story is becoming less and less important for uh, rich countries, especially as they scramble to uh, guarantee their energy security. But also, I mean, I've heard a lot of people saying this is just going to accelerate the energy transition. I've been particularly struck in the run up to COP, what me actually, so I'm based in London, was just how controversial the whole question of whether Rishi Sunak would come to COP or not was. It was front page news in a way that I just don't think would have been the case five years ago. I think the energy crisis story is the number one story in the world right now. But I think in, in the minds of the electorate, it is actually pushing the green energy security uh, story higher up the agenda. Now, Biden will be speaking on Friday. What do you expect? How will that change things? I don't know if it will change. Well, okay, there's a few few things to unpack there. On the one hand, he has a good story to tell. He's coming on the back of midterm results as we speak. But 
they did much better than expected. He's coming on the back of of passing the Inflation Reduction Act. He can, you know, he can credibly come to this COP and say, we, America, are finally stepping up to the plate. We are doing our bit. We are pouring money into, into the clean technologies that are going to take us to net zero. On the other side, the developing world will say, well, that's great. You're looking after yourself. You're pouring money into your own domestic green technologies. A, that looks like protectionism to us, given the terms and conditions of IRA. And B, you know, you're putting all this money, 350 billion or whatever it is, into your own domestic technologies. And you can't give us a tiny, tiny fraction of that. So it could go both ways for him. He'll stand up and say, we're doing all, giving all this money to domestic industry. African countries will be, will, I'm sure many of them will sit back in their seats and stroke their chins and say, what about us? Now, if he does end up losing one of the houses of Congress, how does that affect his climate agenda? Well, it's a big problem, right? I mean, I think the margin of the majority that they had was always very, very narrow. They didn't even have a majority in, in, in the Senate. They needed Kamala Harris's casting vote to get a lot of stuff done there. So they squeezed as much of juice out of that as they possibly could. I think now it's going to be very, very difficult, certainly when it comes to getting more uh, climate aid to the rest of the world that does need to go through Congress, it's going to be very, very hard. That said, I think if you're an opportunistic president and if the staff around him are thinking cleverly, you're going to think, okay, are there Republicans who we can break off? And, you know, especially if it's really like a, if it's a very, very slim Republican majority in the House, maybe there's a few we can pick off and get them to back bits and pieces of climate legislation. Carbon capture stuff was done under Trump, so it's not impossible. And I think one of the most interesting pieces of climate journalism I've read this year was a Bloomberg Opinion piece by my colleague Liam Denning, where he argued if you look at the U.S. districts, if you break down the U.S. district by district, some of the districts that will benefit the most from the Inflation Reduction Act are actually Republican districts. Yeah, they are the places where there's a lot of land and renewable energy, if you're building it, is going to require a lot of land. Exactly. So it's going to become clear over time to voters in that state that this, you know, whatever you think about woke capitalism, solar and wind and carbon capture, it creates jobs. And if you're an opportunistic Republican politician, maybe it's not in your interests to vote against climate legislation. And in fact... Maybe it's in my interest to vote for climate legislation that's well structured and will benefit my constituency. So it's not impossible that over the next two years, certainly I'm sure the Democrats will try, the White House will try to see stuff getting through. And I think as the economy of America changes and as the sort of the energy mix in the American economy changes, we might see new power dynamics playing out uh, when it comes to climate legislation that gets passed. I suppose the one thing that Democrats will be careful to do or not to do is to call it climate legislation. Find another word for it. I mean, we are, we're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. Act. Exactly. Thank you, John. My pleasure. Talking of Biden and the midterms, after the break, we'll be diving deep into how the U.S. can advance its domestic climate agenda with White House National Climate Advisor Ali Saidi. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. 
Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. Joining me now is Ali Zaidi, the White House National Climate Advisor. We recorded the conversation live as part of the Bloomberg Green event at COP27. If you'd like to see the full video of the conversation or more videos from the event, head to the Bloomberg Live YouTube channel linked in the show notes. So Ali Zaidi, welcome to Zero. All right. I'm on the podcast. I'm excited. <laughs> now, we're going to talk a lot about collaboration because we are here at COP, but I cannot not talk about a big competition that's happening in Australia, where India is right now playing a semifinal, and there's a very high chance that India and Pakistan, I was born in India, you were born in Pakistan, is going to be playing the final on Sunday. Who are you uh, excited about it? <laughs> well, I think I have to root for... The green cricket team, right? Oh. The green, the green cricket team. I got to be on brand. Well, <laughs> look, India has the blue jersey. That's fair enough. Democrats, fair you enough. have to root for India now. Fair enough. Well, okay, let's put rivalries apart and, and talk climate. And let me start by doing you a favor and list all of the domestic climate successes of the Biden administration. <laughs> we'll be In here the for first a while. Years, and you can, you can fill the gaps if I have any. So you passed two bills with bipartisan support. You actually got Republicans to vote for climate policy. Huge congratulations. You ratified the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which reduces the amount of refrigerant gases put into the atmosphere. And if everyone follows it, that could cut temperatures by 0.5 degrees Celsius, a huge win. But the US was late to the party, but you got it done. Very important. You passed the IRA the biggest climate bill the U.S. has passed, putting $370 billion uh, at least towards climate funding. Now, did I miss anything? Oh, yeah. We set uh, new standards on cars and trucks. The president signed an executive order. We're now moving towards 50% electric by 2030. Uh, in the industrial sector, oil and gas, we issued a methane reduction program that by our measure, at least already, uh, is aiming at something like 100 million metric tons. That's over a percentage point of U.S. Uh, emissions reductions. We're doing stuff on federal procurement, which I hope we'll talk about, that's path-breaking. Steel, cement, flat glass, clean now and in the future. We're doing work on resilience and adaptation. You know, uh, one of the things we have to realize is even if we're successful, uh, we're still going to have to deal with the fires, the droughts, the floods, uh, the hurricanes. We made a $50 billion investment, but we're also setting new codes and standards and doing research and development um, in that direction. We are, um, I think, doing really inventive work uh, in next generation of building technologies, um, setting standards for um, 
a multitude of commercial and residential appliances, making them more energy efficient, leading uh, the marketplace in that regard. And, you know, it can go on and on and on. But I think the other place where I would point uh, folks to is the integration between what we're doing domestically and what we're doing internationally, you know, the relationship with the EU on the carbon adjustment, um, integrating considerations around CO2 in the way steel moves across borders, that's path-breaking. Um, so, you know, so many touch points and very excited, uh, hopefully, to drill down into some of well, them. Well, all those wins get you to 40% reduction by 2030. It's still far away from the 50% target that Biden has set. And your job as the national climate advisor is to make sure that gap doesn't exist. What are you doing additionally now, we've talked about a long list, to fill that gap? So far away is, a, is subjective. Um, well, you're at 30% reduction now. So, so you're we're going to 40% thirds, there, we're and then you're going 10% more. So that's halfway if you go from where you are today. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so, I, you know, I th it's two-thirds of where we are from now, but you, I, I get you on the baselines. Um, never quibble with the terminal uh, <laughs> on, the, on the math. But, but um, look, I think there, there are a few things. Number one, um, the power sector drives a huge amount of the emissions reductions in this 2030 time horizon. And, you know, we talk a lot about this being the decisive decade for climate action. That's obviously not something we invented. It's a reality that the science imposes on us and that we're seeing all in our communities. But for the power sector, decisive decade means delivery, right? It means steel in the ground. And I think this is a challenge that folks face in a lot of jurisdictions around the world. How do we actually build these projects? Do we get the permitting done? Do we get the interconnection done? It's one thing to get the planning done for a solar project. It's another to make sure it's actually putting electrons on the grid. So that's going to be a big variable. The second thing I'd note is there are a lot of these places that we've considered for a really long time to be hard to decarbonize, right? And, you know, President Biden, I think, uh, teases his team all the time. The hard things are what we're supposed to do in America. And so we've really gone and made a real focus of the industrial sector and the agriculture sector, these hard to decarbonize places as opportunities. There's funding for that in the Inflation Reduction yep. Act and hundreds of millions of metrics, tons of opportunity. Now, let's come to the news outside of COP, which is the midterms. Uh, it seems likely, it hasn't been called yet, but it seems likely that the Democrats uh, may lose at least one of the houses, which means that passing new legislation, any legislation, is going to be nearly impossible. Um, should we expect no more new climate laws for the next two years from you? So let me say three things, one of which is slightly snarky. I went back and I read all of the headlines uh, from the last time we came to the COP. And, you know, we had the Post and Reuters and Times and others saying, there's a cloud hanging over Biden, and will he really deliver? And he's here, but can he get Congress to come along with him? Point number one is, we did. <laughs> People love to, I think, view 
the process with skepticism. And I think time and time and time again, Joe Biden has delivered. So that's thing number one. Thing number two is the point that you made earlier, the bipartisan infrastructure law. Republicans and Democrats included $15 billion for an electric vehicle charging network, 500,000 chargers coast to coast in the United States made by union workers in America, right? That same bill included $15 billion to modernize our grid, $50 billion to take on resilience. So Joe Biden was able to get Republicans to vote for that. He was able to get Republicans to vote for the Kigali Amendment ratification. Third point, the political economy of climate action in the United States, and I say this as someone who's in the Obama administration, who's been in the private sector, who's sat at a university and mused at what's going on from Stanford, beautiful place to muse at the world from. Um, and the, over that longitude, the secular and unambiguous trend of political economy in the United States on climate action is positive. And the reason is because we now see the economic upside, not just in the boardroom, but for our workers and for our communities, and we're fully leaned into that. Well, I should respond to the snark because the job of a journalist is to be fair. Be and fair. To, to be fair, there was a cloud hanging over Biden. <laughs> and to be fair, I started with the successes of the Biden administration. But my question was, will there be no more new climate laws over the next two years? You know, I think that's yet to be seen. Just to go back in time, December 2020, I'm just giving you the best analogy I can, or contrast case rather, not analogy. December 2020, the United States Congress passed a bipartisan energy law that included funding for innovation on clean energy technologies. It, in, it passed the AIM Act, which actually allows us to set rules, and we have, to phase down hydrofluorocarbons. That was a Republican Congress and a Republican president signed it. Yeah, there was a Carbon Capture Act that was so, passed under Trump. So, you know, I think it's possible, it's feasible, and we're trying to build the political economy for action. I'm not gonna prejudge the next two years, but I'll say this, we've got momentum, we've got the leader, and we're gonna keep trying to move forward. Well, the reality is also that the division in the US in politics is growing on all fronts but the climate division has been a very clear one for some time. And so if we look at the Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to be deployed and will require the support of Republican states for those deployments to actually happen, for all that money to be actually spent, we know that Republicans can act against their interest as they are doing with ESG uh, investments. Uh, they may do so with IRA just for spite. What are the bottlenecks and how are you tackling those? Well, one thing I think you do is to be very purposeful about pushing for a visible difference in as many communities in, in every zip code of the United States as possible. And I'll give you the example of our Climate Smart Agriculture Program. So in September, we issued $2.8 billion to incentivize farmers to use Climate Smart Agriculture practices. 50 states all 50 states of the United States, 50,000 farms, 20 million acres, right? So 
I think that's part of how you deal with it is to make sure that everybody is being uh, benefiting from the upside. The second is we've got to engage with these governors. So the electric vehicle charging money I talked about, that money runs through the states. Not all of our states have Democratic governors. All 50 states submitted a plan to get the money. So it's a lot of shoe leather. We, get, we go through a lot of shoes to get this done, but we're going to keep hustling and we're going to keep trying to bring people along. And I think that, you know, the skepticism is right um, because it's informed by choices folks in elected office have made that I think are not representative of the best economic interests of their constituents. But to us, the economics are irresistible. And the more we talk about them, the harder it becomes for people to not be responsive to what's best for uh, the American people. Now, talking of communities and changing the political economy, you've made a commitment to Justice 40. This is the idea where 40% of the benefits from many of the federal climate and environmental programs will go to disadvantaged communities, and that's very welcome. It will change the political economy. But give me an example, a specific one, of how exactly it works. That's a good question. And this is one that's really near and dear to my heart. I actually, before the Biden administration, went to the state of New York where they passed this legislation um, to do 35% of the benefits. And then, um, you know, talking to the, at the time, the candidate, Biden, and he says, well, let's go do 40. <laughs> and now we're doing it. An example of that, um, we have a program through the Federal Energy Management Agency, FEMA. Um, it's a new, newish program called BRIC, uh, which is about building resilience into our communities. That program included Justice 40 as uh, part of its criteria for putting dollars out. Um, multiple billions of dollars have moved out, and they have prioritized communities that are disadvantaged. One very specific grant that I think is illustrative is a wastewater uh, facility in Jacksonville, Florida. It serves the sort of southern part of Georgia and uh, northern part of Florida. And, you know, this is like so many communities everybody knows, right? The lower lying areas are the places where lower income folks live. And as sea levels rise and uh, the, the flooding increases over time, those facilities don't hold up and people are absorbing literal filth because we fail to invest. Brick, that grant, because of Justice 40, prioritizing them, is going to help them make that facility more resilient and adapt it to the changing climate. That's will, a big deal. I would say, though, low-lying areas are also very attractive to rich people. Florida and its <laughs> coast is a real good example. But, I am a Miami Beach partisan, so I, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> now, a lot of the talk at COP27 is about how countries can collaborate. Uh, but we live in a capitalistic... Except on cricket. <laughs> except on cricket. Uh, but we live in a capitalistic economy and competition rules the world. Now, with the IRA, the US has made its biggest bet yet to build green technologies. But those industries have already been built in China. Not all of them, but most of them. Is the IRA a signal that the US is more now in competition than in collaboration with China? Because 
Kerry, Secretary Kerry, confirmed there are no conversations formally happening between U.S. and China of collaboration anymore on climate. We talked about this um, during the years President Trump was in office. The race in the clean energy economy doesn't choose its pace based on whether or not the United States is choosing to run hard. And so people have been competing on these technologies. And I think what's powerful now is we're investing in not only building the demand side of our market, right? We're not just deploying the wind turbines. In our tax code, we have also created a section 45X, I know, really exciting name, to incent the manufacturing of those components in the United States. And if you want the full value of the deployment credit, you have to also get a bunch of the steel and the input materials from the United States. So, heck yeah, we're running to win. And that doesn't come, I think, at the exclusion of anybody. You know, when I think about the president's climate agenda, one of the three core elements of it is this aspect of climate solutions, clean energy technologies made in America. And the way I think about it is, that's America leading by example, not by words. So let's have a race to the top. The problem is the U.S. is starting late. China, between around 2010 and 2018, spent $60 billion just on electric cars and batteries, only on one tiny sector of the decarbonization pie. China has a head start, at least a decade. How do you think the U.S. will catch up? You know, I, I, um, I'm pretty bullish on the United States, which is not unexpected. Um, I, I taught uh, graduate STEM students. Um, we've got the brightest minds in our universities. Our national labs, Argonne National Lab, helped invent that technology. China's making the money, though. And now, no, no, and now, but look, look at what's happening. Since the president took office, forget all of the stuff we've invested, $100 billion of private capital flowing in to make the stuff in America, right? Not just from U.S. companies, foreign direct investment into the United States as well. So, you know, again, One of those you can companies. bet against Biden, you can bet against America, but I feel pretty good that we've got a chance to really seize the leadership here and, and lift up workers and communities in the process. One of those companies is called CATL. Uh, it is now the world's largest battery maker. It's Chinese. Uh, it is at the heart of German industry now. There's a big, power, a big battery plant that they have in, in Germany, the home of automobile, supplying the very heart of the future transportation uh, for electric cars, and it is looking to build a plant in North America, probably not in the U.S. as, as we understand. But private capital can also come in from, from Chinese uh, companies that That's are true. leading on this. That's true. And, and you know what? Um, anyone who rests on today's technology is also uh, probably in for an awakening at some point, right? You've got, sure, you've got some of the incumbents, but you also got companies that are invested in the next generation beyond lithium-ion, right? Companies like Form Energy that are now building fabs in the United States. Um, so, you know, I think this is a dynamic market. We've got EV penetration, we've got momentum on it, but 
I think the, the lead will change a bunch of times. And again, we're running faster and faster. Now, domestic policies uh, that we've talked about a bunch of times only become effective if the rules are in place. And one place where the Biden administration can be fairly criticized is that rulemaking has been slow. Things like setting standards for tailpipe emissions, for power plants, for methane. Um, as we move into the second half of this term, is there a renewed focus on making rules? And how are you going to deal with the legal challenges that will inevitably come? So many thoughts on this. But let me, let me start with the day one of the Biden administration. On day one of the Biden administration, President signed an executive order, said let's take on all of the regulatory rollbacks that had taken place in the administration prior, about 200 items to take on. We did that. He looked around the agencies that set these rules. A lot of them had been decimated in terms of human capital. Some of them had stopped collecting the data that you need to actually do the regulatory work. We've been doing the work of rebuilding them. And at the same time, we've set rules for hydrofluorocarbons. We've, in the Obama administration, they, we, they, uh, set only standards for new sources of methane. We propose standards for existing sources of methane. Our fuel economy standards that we've finalized go further and faster than anything anyone's ever done before. So, and as I said, over 100 actions on energy efficiency through the Department of Energy on the regulatory side. So if the question is, hey, you guys have been going really fast, really hard at trying to seize the full economic opportunity that climate change represents for the American people, are you going to keep running that fast? The answer is, no, we're going to run faster. All right. Now, we are at COP27, uh, and we should talk about the questions being raised by developing countries here at COP27. Um, and there is a domestic question that I want to ask you about it. Now, to give you context, yesterday it was announced that the U.S., through its uh, Export-Import Bank, is giving Romania $3 billion towards its $9 billion of building two nuclear reactors. That sum is approximately the amount that the U.S. gives in climate financing to developing countries. So when the U.S. comes here and does not show more money, that's not really the case that there is no more money to be given. It's that there isn't the political will. Your job as a domestic national climate advisor is also to make sure that the president can have money from the Congress to live up to the $11 billion that he has promised. How are you going to make that happen? Number one, I think it's us recognizing um, that we are in a shared challenge with folks all around the world um, and that we must take all of this on together. And I think the place where we are succeeding in doing that, you know, going into Paris, something like five, six degrees, coming into this administration, something like three degrees, coming out of Glasgow, under two degrees. 
Now, finally, I know you don't like to scoop your boss. He's coming tomorrow. <laughs> But if you were writing Biden's speech, what would you say? That's, that's a funny one. Uh, what a hypothetical. Um, <laughs> look, I, you know, I think, I think for the president, it's important for him to convey where all of this comes from, for him. Um, I've been fortunate enough to sit on the plane with him, sit in the car with him, sit in the oval with him, and hear and absorb uh, his passion and where his focus on climate comes from, and it's, and it's totally in his core. Um, that's why it's gotten the prioritization that it's gotten in this administration. I think that's a really important thing for everyone to understand and for them to hear. I think the second is um, for people to understand the progress we've made. You know, the same folks who fed us denial and delay now want to feed us cynicism. They want to say that no matter how many people show up, no matter how many people push, no matter how many meetings we have and how many agreements we reach, that we won't make progress. But we are. And I think it's important for the President of the United States to share his perspective on that. And then the third is, there's a lot of talk about the headwinds to climate action these days, right? Energy security concerns, concerns around consumer costs. I think what we've discovered in the United States is that clean energy and the solutions around climate actually help us not only meet the moment on this environmental objective, but help consumers, help manufacturing help our national security, help our energy security, that's a case I think he should make here and to all the leaders around the world. And I think if they hear that and they understand it, we will redouble our efforts collectively to move in the direction we need to. Thank you, Ali Zaidi. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Zero. If you like the show, please rate, review and subscribe. Tell a friend or tell Biden's speechwriter. If you've got a suggestion for a guest or topic or something you just want us to look into, get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Also, while at COP27, the Bloomberg Green paywall is down. Head to bloomberg.com slash green to read all our latest coverage and everything in the archives for absolutely free. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks to Kira Bindrim and Stacey Wong. I'm Akshat Rati, back later this week with more from COP27.